Hi, I'm Jackson Bettis. And I'm Cal Ussery. And we'll be talking about our podcast today, The Bachelors Misbehave. This is episode two of our podcast for issues in contemporary theater. And we'll be talking about power structures in theater. Who has it, who doesn't, and what are the effects? Previously on The Bachelors Misbehave, me and my co-host Anna talked about defining power as uh, a relation, as Foucault talks about it, and we discussed the dynamics of how this plays out in higher education, talking about power knowledge and the way that that power is used to shape the next generation of theater artists and maintain the status quo. Right, and that included the idea about power as something that everybody interacts with. It's not a thing as much as it is a process that people participate in, right? Absolutely. Power as a relation. What are we going to be talking about today, Jackson? Well, now that we've introduced the issue and talked about a specific example as theater in higher ed, today we're going to dig more into the history and the context of these power structures. We're going to talk about the hierarchies as they exist in the modern world, and we're going to get to that by going all the way back to ancient history and recounting how we got here. Then we'll finish by talking about perhaps what we can do to change it now that we are here. First up, we're going to talk about some of the origins of theater. Now, we know that theater has a very long tradition dating all the way back to the earliest oral traditions of ritual, pretty much all the way back as far as records go. The idea of a script for a theatrical performance, the earliest written records we have of these things go back to the Middle Kingdom period in ancient Egypt. This would have been around 1900 BCE with the Ikernafret stone. Now, this stone described a religious mystery play uh, about the god Osiris. The priests would take roles. They would perform characters of gods and other um, characters in these stories as they acted out the life, death, resurrection, and Osiris in the Abydos Passion Play. Yeah, and those oral po poetic traditions and rituals were carried across many cultures, too. Um, other cultures in Africa, India, China, across the world had some kind of theatricality very early on in, in the ancient era. However, in the Western tradition of theater, we tend to look to Greek theater as the beginning of it all. A lot of this has to do with the origination of the Greeks, their invention of the, the festival Dionysia, and in particular, the city Dionysia, which involved a play festival. Uh, this play festival was, as far as we know, the earliest one in the world, and it involved a competition for plays between mainly two genres, tragedy and comedy. And that's much of what's established our ideas in the West about theater. It was the Greeks who had uh, Thespist, who was the first actor of sorts. Their earliest plays were more of a chorus, which is a group of several people engaged in a song and dance that tell a story. Thespis created the actor 
and from there they eventually gained two actors and three actors from there, and eventually that led to our current state. Now, we explored the history because it highlights some important points. For a long time, theater has been dominated by religion, and it was dominated by men. And so we can see how throughout time, history, theater has been, uh, there's been a hegemony in theater. There have been those that control the power and use that power to maintain the status quo. So Jackson, what do these theater hierarchies look like today? Who has the power and who doesn't? Right. So today, the establishment, uh, particularly in America, runs a lot on money. It's producers, it's uh, owners of theaters, whoever has, has owners of theaters, also owners of artistic programs, and in the case of universities, professors, and to some extent, directors also have a lot of clout. But just in general, there's also the aspect of, of reputation as another transactional form of power. Uh, all of us in the industry are, ex are expected to keep up a reputation that not only is truth of our work, but also doesn't offend anyone in power. Yeah, we're constantly told that theater is about who you know as much as it is about what you know. And when you have a, a dominant class that is controlling theater and you have groups that are historically marginalized, they're not making those connections. So it can be very difficult for people to break into this old boys club of theater. So let's talk now about some of these specific disparities that we're seeing. Jackson, talk to me a little bit about the gap that you're seeing in education. Right. Well, in the field of education, one of the biggest issues is just privilege, even having access to a degree, and particularly at a liberal arts college, where most of the biggest theater schools in the, the country are, is difficult for everyone to obtain. And even before that, I think there's an aspect of being a kid it's much easier to obtain movies across classes than it is theater. And so theater becomes something that those who are privileged from their youth, privileged from their childhood, are able to see at a young age a lot more often than anyone else. Yeah, so I, I see three main things governing this, this access. There is um, the breakdown of gender, as we talked about, Theater has been male-dominated since all the way back to the Greeks. Um, there is, as you talked about, money, which, especially in America, is inextricably tied to race. So it is the white men with money that are in power in theater, and the other people suffer because of this. So we see this in the form of the sexism in the entertainment industry. It has been highly publicized recently through things like the Me Too movement, where a culture 
has been exposed that for a long time excused things like sexual harassment because people didn't want to offend the men in power and risk retaliation. It's being ex exposed in things like um, the gap in work for female artists and male artists. Jennifer Tuckett and the Sphinx Theater Company put together a study called What Share of the Cake? looking at theater in England in 2019. They found that only 31% of all artistic directors of theater companies were women. They found that only 10% of theater critics were women. And the numbers were similar for playwrights and actors. Women are consistently underrepresented in jobs in theater. Right. And when we talk about race, we find a lot of similar things. Uh, we have a statistic from the Asian American Performers Action Coalition, uh, AAAPAC, which tells us that about 62% of the roles played by white actors, and this is in New York City, and that's compared to a 43% population of white people in New York City. So that's about a 20% deficit of representation on the stage. Some of these issues have to do with availability of plays and a lot of the, the critics and detractors of, of movements like diversity and equity and inclusion point to the lack of availability of roles and plays. But do you think, Jackson, that it is about availability of those plays, or do you think it's about the choice to produce these plays. And that's exactly what we're finding. Part of the joy of looking at history is discovering so many lost plays or presumed to be lost plays. Regardless of whether plays are being produced, writers have always been writing. And there are plays in America going all the way back through the 20th century by playwrights of all different ethnic backgrounds but it was Tennessee Williams who was produced again and again. And in a, in a system where we're finding funding for theater is becoming more and more exclusive. And I think you just hit the nail on the head, Jackson. And this is what I really want to dive into next. Money talks. Exactly. All right, Jackson, let's talk money. So we mentioned previously that there are these tremendous hiring gaps in who is being offered jobs. But the, the crazy, terrible thing is that even when jobs are going to women um, and BIPOC artists, they're still being paid less than their counterparts. Uh, the, the same right. uh, study of... New York theaters found that theaters were spending $1.70 on white actors for every dollar spent on BIPOC actors. So that's uh, almost twice as much money being spent for white actors as for BIPOC artists. And the Actors Equity Association did a study of theater salaries in 2017. And they found that, and this was on Broadway for principal roles, Black actors 
were paid 10% less than their white counterpart. So even when we begin closing these gaps in who's getting the jobs, there's still a disparity in how much money they're being paid. Yeah, and Cal, just real quick, that's got me thinking about how that's connected to the culture of theater where somebody can be judged, their worth, their monetary worth is judged based on their abilities and their abilities to perform. And I'm wondering now if perhaps that could be behind the justification for a lot of these wage gaps we're seeing that, oh, this actor is marketable and he just so happens to be white and male. And that's what they'll say. But we're seeing a continuing disparity, even when people across all fields within theater, art artists and designers and actors of all kinds are suffering this wage disparity. You make an interesting point. If if an artist's compensation is supposed to be based on the value of their work, and we are in a society that is going to inherently value the work of white men higher, then these disparities are going to continue to exist. And I think that's partially tied back to some of the gaps in uh, theater criticism that we noted. And this same issue also applies to funding in theater. It's a very select group of people that even have the means to provide funding for theaters. And so that limits the range of theaters that receive that profit, that receive that benefit. Uh, This issue becomes particularly alarming when we look at nonprofit theaters in particular. Uh, There's a statistic we found from What Share of the Cake that says theaters with female artistic directors received only 21% of nonprofit funding. And this was compared to the 31% of those theaters that had female artistic directors. So women are an undersized share of the population of directors and are receiving an even smaller share of the funding. And so let's talk about this idea of funding, right? Because we think of the artistic director as being in charge of a theater company, but that's not really the case because in the majority of situations, they have to answer to a board of trustees or a board of directors, which is essentially a group of rich people that give money to the theater and then get to make decisions for these shareholders. Exactly, and the artistic director is, as consequence, held accountable to that group as well. Even if a particular artistic director has ambitions, they can't necessarily carry out all their change, or they can't carry out their change without approval from the board especially anything involving money, because it's the board's money that's always at stake. And if we follow the money and start looking at the composition of these boards, what we find is the theater communication group uh, in, in their study of the demographics of these boards. Granted, this is in 2013, so this study is a little bit old now. Hopefully things have improved since. But they found that across the theaters they observed, almost 90% of board members were white. And the number one priority listed for recruiting board members and the composition of the board was having access to wealth. Now, on this same survey, diversity of the board was ranked a fifth priority. So we have, again, these groups of rich white people that are controlling that have enormous control over the direction that a theater can go. Right. 
and that particular issue of access to wealth being their their strongest consideration ties into the history we talked about again and, and have briefly touched on now and then with wealth disparity in America when for the decades of their existence these these tables have been filled with just white men and when white men have been the only ones with access to money and our history has disenfranchised all groups besides white men at some point or another in our history everyone's been disenfranchised besides white men there's a statistic from the Center for American Progress that kind of lays out where we're currently at still in America and in 2016 is when the statistic is from and it says that the median wealth for black and Hispanic families was about $17,600 for black families and $20,700 for Hispanic families. That's compared to the median wealth for white families, which was about $171,000. So that's 17,000 tens of thousands compared to hundreds of thousands. That's the, the difference in wealth disparity in America. And so if these boards are holding their number one priority as access to wealth, that's automatically limiting their access to diversity. No wonder it's ranked fifth on their list. They can't possibly get to it if all they're focused on is access to wealth. And that's why these issues we're discussing in theater really strongly tie to greater social issues. Because these boards have so much power over the policies of a theater, only 34% of the theaters uh, in this study had a written policy on sexual harassment, and only 19% had a written policy on the diversity of the staff and the board. So we've thrown a lot of depressing statistics out today, and I don't want to leave with this notion that things are really bleak for theater because there is a way forward. So we're going to wrap up by talking a little bit about some of the things that are being done today to fix these problems. So, as Cal said, we have made things look pretty bleak, but there's so many activists in the field today that are working to fight these systemic issues and bring about change. Uh, in fact, one of the now older initiatives is Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. The mission statement and goal of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion was most essentially to change the faces at the table. Unfortunately, while there's been a lot of progress in that area, we still see so many problems perpetuating. And some of the criticism that's been brought against equity, diversity, and inclusion in recent years is that these fixes it proposes are really only surface level changes. And there's been a lot of companies, in fact, in the theater world and in the education world as well, that have managed to get away with only surface level changes to their businesses. And we're seeing now some of the backlash against this. It came out just recently, um, this new hashtag we see you. And a group of uh, BIPOC theater artists came together and put out a very forceful statement um, trying to address the failures to make progress despite the focus on EDI initiatives. And they recently released um, a, a manifesto, BIPOC Demands for White American Theater. It's 
really an, an amazing document and reading through it and seeing the sweeping changes and, and the incredible vision for the future of American theater is so, so exciting. So I encourage you to go read the whole thing yourself. But uh, just to sum up a few of the things that they are proposing, they are, they are not against uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion training. In fact, they uh, one of the demands is to implement mandatory EDI and anti-racism training at all levels of theater, including in education, for all staff members, for all artists. So to really make sure that everyone is being aware of these issues and prepared to address them. And it's interesting to see the ways that some of their uh, some of their other proposals, while not directly related to equity, diversity, and inclusion, seek to make theater more open and accessible for everybody. Right. A lot of the other demands center around that issue of class disparity and class division, which in America is disproportionately affects minority groups and BIPOC groups. So some of those other demands is things such as ending 10 to 12s, which are horrendous work hours, I've experienced a couple, uh, and also ending six-day rehearsal weeks. Uh, another big thing is ending unpaid internship programs, which creates a huge disparity. It is such a privilege and a luxury to get away with working a 40-hour, in fact, many times more than 40-hour work week over the course of a summer and walk away without a penny. That's not something that everyone is able to have access to, and it's created one of the biggest disparities in this field. When people can't even get past the first step, and so often performing an unpaid internship is considered one of the earliest steps for an actor or a designer or a craftsperson to advance in their field, they're not able to get past even that first step. Absolutely. So breaking down these barriers of entry to the theater is a very important part of these demands, as well as closing some of these wage and employment gaps that we've seen. A core demand um, from, the, from the document is 50 or more percent of staff at all levels, at departmental, um, in all design teams, in all incoming, even in education, in incoming classes for performing arts. 50 plus percent BIPOC people just saying, listen, we have not been at the table for hundreds of years and now we are demanding a space. And additionally, decentering whiteness in the curriculum and in the works that are being produced. So bringing in BIPOC playwrights to tell BIPOC stories for BIPOC actors. And this is just the tip of the iceberg for the um, really in incredible changes that are being called for. So while things may look a little grim right now, there is a lot of energy and a lot of momentum right now for how things can move forward. Right. And we're seeing more aspects for how we can get, even when faces are at the table, that voices will be heard. History has shaped our modern hierarchies, but from what we've talked about today, hopefully we can see many ways that as individuals and members of community, we can work in our field to change this. I want to thank you, Jackson, for a great discussion today, and thank you all for listening. Please remember to like and subscribe, and tune in 
to our next episode of The Bachelor's Misbehave.